This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Today, the leading cause of death among children is no longer a car accident, is no longer illness or malnourishment. The leading cause of death among children is a firearm. The leading cause of death of children is a firearm. Democratic Senator Chuck Schumer spoke those words in May of 2022. On May 24th of that year, an 18-year-old gunman murdered 19 children and two adults and injured 17 more at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Schumer was citing data from the CDC, data that's now being widely shared again after last week's mass shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville. The CDC had found that between 2019 and 2020, the number of children who died due to firearms jumped 30 percent. Just 5 percent of those deaths were accidental shootings. A third were by suicide. And 65 percent of those kids were killed by violent assault with a gun, the vast majority of which took place not at schools, but in American neighborhoods. All told, it made 2020 the year where guns became the number one killer of American children. But for some kids, 2020 was nothing new. For black children specifically, gun violence has been the leading cause of death since 2006. Just growing up in that environment, you have to move differently. If it was a car that was driving down the block too slow or drove around two times, you have to be vigilant. You can't walk around with two headphones in because you have to always be able to hear for your surroundings. And you just are constantly just being prepared for whatever might happen. This is Trevon Bosley. He grew up in Roseland, one of Chicago's most dangerous neighborhoods. At a point, I, I didn't see myself reaching past the age of 18. And, and many of them in these communities are just trying to take it one day at a time. They don't see the, see 16. And the trauma that just comes from living in a constant state of fear and in a constant state of worrying, it just leads to a sense of hopelessness at all times. Trevon was just seven years old when he lost a family member to gun violence. His 18-year-old brother Terrell was shot and killed while bringing in instruments into a church for band practice. Majority of the shootings that we see in our communities are not people in the gang. It was just people living their lives as normal. My brother was killed at church. My cousin was shot and killed down the street from his home. Uh, I know kids who were shot and killed in their homes while getting ready for school. People just sit on their porches. The shooter who killed Terrell has never been found. Trevon says his brother's death changed everything in their family. My parents, of course, they were super vigilant when it came to everything going on. Me and my, my other brother, we couldn't go out to a lot of places. We couldn't stay out late. We couldn't be on the porch just with no one home. We couldn't do a lot of the things that most kids could do, like going up and down the block or leaving off the block. We couldn't do any of those things because they didn't want to take the chance of losing another child. So Trevon became an anti-violence activist in his community. He's part of the group Brave Youth Leaders, which stands for bold resistance against violence everywhere. 
But he says at first, getting adults to listen was hard. Especially my younger years, uh, we would get ignored all the time. And I think it's because rather than people seeing us as people who are closest to the situation, closest to the problem, they just see a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge, or they don't know this, that, and the third. Versus they would be the most knowledgeable because they deal with it the closest. Dravon says that made him want to work harder to stop the violence in his community. Here he is at the March for Our Lives rally in 2018 in Washington, D.C. Everyday shootings are everyday problems. Now, make sure everybody watches and hears us. Everyday shootings are everyday problems. My name is Trevon Bosley, and I'm here with the brave youth leaders of St. Sabina. And I'm here to speak on behalf of Chicago's youth who are surrounded and affected by gun violence every day. Trevon is 24 years old now. He graduated from college last year with a degree in electrical engineering, and he's chosen to move back to his Chicago neighborhood. He says it's profoundly frustrating that the media and lawmakers' focus on childhood gun deaths surges only after every school shooting in mostly white schools, when kids in his neighborhood have been living with a form of mass gun death for their entire lives. The national coverage started coming when it started happening in other communities that looked more like those who would care about it. So in the beginning, it was incredibly infuriating just understanding that many of the times the people in my community, my friends and family were just considered a tally at the end of the week. Eight people shot, 72 people killed. Trevon Bosley, he's part of the anti-gun violence group Brave Youth Leaders. Well, Dr. Victor Garcia joins us now. He's a pediatric surgeon and founding director of trauma services at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Garcia, welcome to On Point. Thank you for having me, Magna. So we're taking a specific look today at the toll that gun violence has taken on Black youth in this country. And as I mentioned, the fact that that it's been the number one cause of death for Black children in this nation since 2006. Dr. Garcia, I wonder if you could tell us the story of when uh, one of the first times that you it really hit home to you with one of your patients about the toll that uh, uh, gun deaths were having on black children. Certainly. Um, It uh, was some uh, almost 15 15 years ago that uh, a child, and obviously I can't reveal specifics, but... um, who, who died in my hands uh, as a result of a gunshot wound uh, to her chest. Um, she uh, was an innocent bystander, if you, if you will. Uh, and I, at that time, it was sort of an epiphany and awakening for me that um, my responsibility as the director of the trauma program at this hospital goes beyond just simply taking care of children uh, who come to me, but actually to prevent uh, the injuries. And it's been, I think, long appreciated that injury is a leading cause of death for children uh, in this country. But as uh, Teron has uh, mentioned, uh, most people are not aware of the fact that when you look at intentional injuries, uh, lock homicides, uh, that there are things that can be done uh, very similar to the way that we were able to sort of reduce the number of children dying as a result of motor vehicle crashes. And mm-hmm. so the 
irony, if you will, the paradoxes is that uh, we were able to do something for motor vehicle crashes substantially. We were able to do things for lung cancer substantially. Uh, we are able to address this uh, epidemic of gun violence, uh, particularly in neighborhoods that are most disadvantaged, not because of the people in those neighborhoods, but because of what has been done uh, to those neighborhoods over nearly a century. Mm-hmm. Now, that little girl who died in your arms, I understand that um, you actually still have the bullet that killed her? I do. And I have that bullet as a constant reminder of uh, work that has to be done um, and that can be done. So, yes. And anyone who comes into my office to talk about that uh, particular topic, um, I make it a point of having that on the desk, not telling them what it is, but just to have them glance around the office and then um, ask me, well, what is that? And then I share with them why this is in my in my office and why it should be a concern of not just mine, but of theirs. Yeah. Well, you said um, that little girl died about 15 years ago, um, which brings it her death very close to the time where, again, uh, in 2006, so, oh my gosh, can I do that math now? I can't even do that math. 14, 15, 16, 17 years ago. <laughs> 17 years ago, um, black children, you know, unfortunately crossed this, this terrible milestone of guns being the number one cause of death um, amongst black youth. And so I wonder, since then, um, can you talk a little bit about the kinds of, of uh, patients that you, that you see coming into the hospital with gunshot wounds? I mean, has, what has changed or what has stayed constant? And, and, and has, it, have, has the number grown? Well, yes, the number has grown, uh, but then there have been naders where it goes, sort of goes down and then it comes back up again. And so obviously that begs the question, when you have that sort of fluctuation, uh, what is it that hasn't changed that sort of allows this to persist? Um, the, what prompted me to sort of take a more active role um, in not only doing something, but doing something that is informed by the science is uh, a nearly 300% increase in the number of children coming into what I would regard as the leading children's hospital in the country. And as a leader in improving child health, um, I felt that this was our responsibility to not just be advocates, not just to be activists, but really to look at this as really what it is, a complex challenge and be entrepreneurs and sort of apply this kinds of science that's out there that can, I think, really change the equilibrium, which has persisted uh, for decades now. Yeah. And that's a 300% increase in child shooting victims that have come into the hospital? Yes, at that particular point in time. Um, okay. Well, when I arrived here <clears throat> from the East Coast, uh, we had maybe one or two children coming in with gunshot wounds. But, I mean, I think we need to understand um, the broader context. And there were a number of things that I think contributed to that 300% increase. Um, which, again, if we look at that, we can certainly feel that we can do something about it. But uh, there was, you know, a change in the economics. Um, there was the consequences, finally, of really redlining 
uh, historical disinvestments, uh, neighborhood disadvantage. Uh, and as a consequence of that, we see not only children suffering from violence, but also uh, uh, parents, uh, dissolution of families, etc. Yeah. Well, Dr. Victor Garcia, stand by for just a moment. Today, we are talking about the disproportionate toll that gun violence has taken on Black children. More in a moment. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. And today we're talking about the fact that in this country, the number one cause of death for children in America is guns. Now, that number became true for all children in this country in 2020. But for black youth in particular, guns have been the leading cause of death since 2006. And today we're joined by Dr. Victor Garcia. He's a pediatric surgeon at Cincinnati Hospital Medical Center. Um, And Dr. Garcia, how long have you been uh, in pediatrics? Well, I've been in pediatric surgery since 1981. Uh, 1981. And uh, yeah, so it's been a long time. Were gunshot wounds... Uh, and treating children with gunshot wounds, something that you trained for earlier, early in your career? No, absolutely not. Uh, this is sort of a relatively recent phenomena. Uh, and uh, I think that one could draw some uh, sort of correlations uh, with a number of other phenomena that took place uh, in this country and that disproportionately uh, affected people of color and the neighborhoods where they, where they live. Um, and so that then sort of brings to mind uh, what was the political economy in these neighborhoods uh, and uh, how did that sort of influence uh, not only the uptick and uh, violence, uh, but then the lingering effects of, of what happened back then in the 1980s. Uh, and there, I think we need to look at what <clears throat> what the science tells us, uh, not only economics, but sociology uh, and criminology, and that is the crack cocaine epidemic that uh, really was targeting black black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Well, I've um, heard that you use some very pointed words when describing what, what you see as the impact of gun violence um, 
on black communities, but again, specifically on black children in particular, you've called it a form of genocide. Tell me more. Yeah, I mean, I I do. I mean, I think it's genocide when you think about a group of individuals um, that uh, are sort of dying uh, as a consequence of uh, structural issues or uh, something outside of their own their own doing. I mean, we've had clear examples of that uh, with the Holocaust, um, with things that took place in Africa, with the Rwanda. I think that there's something ongoing in this country that really disproportionately affects black uh, individuals, uh, and particularly black children. So that if you live in a certain neighborhood, um, the, the, the likelihood, uh, if that neighborhood is poor, Okay, the, the likelihood that you will die earlier, uh, sicker, poorer, uh, and less educated uh, is significantly increased. Uh, Ross Chetty tells us with his sort of extraordinary breakthrough research that the worst places for poor white children are almost all better than the best places for poor black children. And again, leveraging the science, you know, what uh, the sociologists Samson and Wilson and others tell us is that if that black child doesn't move out of that neighborhood by the, by the time they're eight or 12 years of age, they will be stuck there for the rest of their lives. So what is it about the urban violence that impacts a particular race or ethnicity, okay? And it's spatially clustered and it's not just violence, but it's a host of other health disparities that really curtailed the ability for black children to really achieve their full potential. Uh, And on that point, let me just suggest one other thing, that despite the optimism of the time of the civil rights era, the vast majority of black children have not made any advancement out of the poor neighborhoods where they were born. Hmm. We're going to bring in a a gun violence prevention researcher here in just a moment. But uh, Dr. Garcia, when when you say that gun violence is a form of genocide uh, on black communities and again, particularly on black children. I mean, and, and you just, you, you yourself mentioned the Holocaust or what happened in Rwanda, but you know, in those cases, there was a specific and organized campaign of extermination by one group against another. I mean, is that what you're, what you see going on here? And if so, who's, who's organizing this campaign of extermination that you're describing? Well, let let me be clear that that is my perspective. Um, And it's a perspective that I have come, uh, that I've concluded is the case because of um, the structural uh, violence that has taken place in this country that disproportionately impacts people of color. Um, Neighborhoods that, um, I mean, the making of the uh, m- making of the ghetto is something that just didn't happen on the part of blacks. It was the constraint, constraining of individuals as to where they can live. And then on top of that, then you find yourself uh, deprived of investments that uh, uh, others well, have benefited from. Look at the GI Bill and look at um, redlining, as I mentioned before. That really contributed to what we're seeing today, uh, lingering effects. 
Well, Dr. Garcia, stand by for just a moment because I want now, I want to bring in um, Professor Joseph Richardson into the conversation now. He's a professor of African American Studies and Anthropology at the University of Maryland, also a gun violence prevention researcher, and he's the author of uh, many studies and papers on the subject. And we've got links to them at onpointradio.org. Professor Richardson, welcome to you. Thank you, Magna, for having me. Well, I'd actually like to hear what you found in your research. You've spoken with many, many um, black men who, black men in particular, who've either been shot themselves or have experienced gun violence in some fashion. You heard a Trevon story at the top of the show. How does that compare with what you've heard from from people you've spoken with? Yeah. So, in many of my studies with young black men who I've interviewed, we've heard similar stories regarding traumatic stress. One thing of note that I would really like to emphasize is are the adverse childhood experiences that many of the young men I work with have endured over the course of their lifetimes. And so when we we talk about gun violence, we also have to talk about and discuss, as Dr. Garcia mentioned, structural violence in the ways that structural violence plays out in the lives of of young people. So when you live in a neighborhood which is um, inundated with uh, concentrated poverty, uh, hyper surveillance of policing, mass incarceration, and all of the other chronic diseases that we know affect uh, poor communities of color, how does that play out in terms of uh, trauma? And so for the young men that that I work with, they've often discussed trauma beginning very early on in childhood. And we know that if that goes unaddressed and undiagnosed, those early childhood experiences actually manifest themselves in other high-risk behaviors in adulthood. So we often like to say within every young person that we work with, young adults, there, there often is a broken child within that person. And so we need to address what those uh, adverse childhood experiences are. And I'll just give you a really interesting statistic just in terms of uh, chronic exposure to violence. There was, there was a recent study done by the D.C. Policy Center, and I mentioned D.C. because I do my work primarily in Washington, D.C., which found that 89% of the children of color in the district in 2021, lived within half of a mile of a homicide compared to 57% of white children. So you can obviously see there's a 32% difference, but that's what we mean when we discuss adverse childhood experiences and the fact that we have many young people who are growing up in neighborhoods where they're disproportionately um, exposed to, to homicides and violence in their communities. Hmm. So, so when you say, can you, can you tell me more about that? Because I also want to know what your research has found about the impact that those homicides, and again, specifically we're focusing on the deaths of young children. Like what impact do those deaths have on uh, the families that have to live with that, with that terrible loss? So we see symptoms now of vicarious and secondary trauma, where you have family members who are also experiencing traumatic stress. And so, uh, for example, symptoms of hypervigilance, hyperarousal, the inability to to be comfortable 
um, always alert. Uh, nightmares. We often find that we have caregivers who are suffering from nightmares and, and, and are afraid to allow their children to go outside for fear that they may be um, injured again. And this is these are for the parents who unfortunately have suffered their children either uh, suffering from a non-fatality shooting or a fatal shooting. So we see among parents the same symptoms that we would see among people who have been injured. And those, those symptoms seem to be quite parallel. But unfortunately, uh, we're not doing a great job at providing services for the caregivers of young people who have been injured. Mm-hmm. Um, what I'm trying to understand is, you know, as as both you and Dr. Garcia have pointed out, these structural differences and and the lack of support in um, Black neighborhoods has existed for a long, long time. Um, What do you think happened, though, around 2006 when, um, again, that that really horrible milestone was reached that it was gun violence that became the leading cause of death uh, amongst Black children? Because you know it wasn't that wasn't necessarily the case before that, even with the existing structural inequities. I'm not quite sure of actually what was happening around 2006, but I can say that the the impact of mass incarceration, um, which started very early on in the late 80s and the, in the early 1990s, which happened to also correspond with at the point where we were at, at our previous highest point of, of homicides in this country, has had a significant impact on many communities. And so what we have, have seen in terms of mass incarceration and its impact of extracting um, adults from communities, which has destabilized both families and communities, has a significant impact on, on children. And so I would say just in terms of, of the impact of mass incarceration, as well as, as Dr. Garcia mentioned, the redlining that has been occurring in communities. And then we we didn't touch on the uh, proliferation of accessibility to guns. And as we know, mm-hmm. uh, beginning very early on uh, in, in the 1990s and moving up to the present, that we've had an explosion of, of gun sales in this country. And we only need to look to the, at the beginning of COVID to see the surge in gun violence. And I think has a significant correlation to, to the number of young people who are now ending up in our trauma centers injured by firearms, the accessibility and proliferation of gun sales in this country. Mm-hmm. Dr. Garcia, I was wondering if you had some thoughts on that. Yeah, I do. <clears throat> and again, um... I I would argue that uh, the the disparities as far as gun violence and black children sort of suffering from gun violence uh, was present well before 2006. And certainly when you look at the crack cocaine epidemic and how, where that was focused, um, even back then, uh, Magno, we saw uh, this significant disparity as far as blacks versus whites uh, suffering um, dying as a result of gunshot wounds. Um, and so what then has happened then is when you have, let's say, in 2006 or 2008, let's say with the recession, 
you'll see an uptick uh, in, in violence uh, and, and homicides, and not just violence and homicides, but also suicides in certain segments mm-hmm. of the population. Um, you know, we see here suicides in children, black boys uh, under the age of 12, uh, seeing an increase in, in, in that regard. Uh, but I would suggest uh, for the listening audience that it's not something that just took place in 2006. It's something that's been going on since the 1980s, the 1990s. Um, but one of the challenges is, is that, you know, without the money to uh, sort of invest in research or firearm related uh, sort of injuries, uh, some of that data was not as explicit or certainly not as publicly uh, known uh, as it is today. Mm-hmm. Uh, point well taken, Dr. Garcia. Uh, Professor Richardson, let me turn back to you here because, uh, you know, in trying to look at the whole uh, suite of potential factors here, I wonder, you know, how much um, law enforcement has to do with this because, you know, thinking about, for example, when it comes to to homicides in many major American cities, just the, the clearance rate of making arrests for, uh, you know, for these murders is, especially in these communities, is is just horrifically low in some places. I mean, does that factor into uh, to the, the proliferation of, of the gun violence? Um, it's a hard and tricky question to answer, but I, I would say that the level of distrust in uh, black and brown communities towards the police has significantly increased the level of people in in these communities carrying firearms because they feel unsafe. And so um, what we are hearing from young men who have have been injured um, and families as well, particularly in in Baltimore and Washington, DC, where I conduct my work, is that many people are just have totally lost trust in, in the police. And as a result, we have young people who are now arming themselves because they feel unsafe. And so if you look at, for example, in Baltimore, after the death of Freddie Gray, there were upwards of 300 homicides in Baltimore every year up into 2022. And so we're talking about 2015 to 2022. Prior to that, there were less than 300 homicides a year. And so for some cities, such as Baltimore, Freddie Gray was that demarcation point in terms of a lack of trust in police, which has been occurring in black communities throughout the the Mm. country for years. But we also have to use that as as a as a way of looking at how are black communities affected by policing and the level of distrust and how does that distrust actually lead to, as you said, the lower closure rates, but individuals also feeling that they're unsafe and feeling the need that they have to arm themselves, whether you see that as right or wrong. Yeah. Well, and I mean, and Professor Richardson, as I think you're pointing out, that's ultimately also leading to the deaths of more Black Americans. So we're going to talk more about this and about what impact the pandemic may have had uh, and what to do when we come back. This is On Point.
did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and today we're talking about the fact that since 2006, at least officially, gun violence became the leading cause of death for black children in this country. Now, that uh, grim statistic, that grim milestone spread to all children in general by 2020, that now for all kids in America, guns are the most likely cause of death in the United States. And, of course, that problem... That terrible problem was wildly exacerbated during the pandemic because gun violence jumped significantly during the pandemic. And that, again, took a disproportionate toll on black youth. A recent study found that black children were 100 times more likely to be shot than white children during the height of the pandemic. And this was in Philadelphia, New York, Los Angeles and Chicago. Well, a different study focused on St. Louis. It had similar results. The amount of children that we were seeing with gunshot wounds increased quite a lot. It went up more than 50% compared to the five years before the pandemic started. That's Dr. Mary Beth Bernardin, a pediatric emergency medicine physician and lead author of the study. And the study found that Black children suffered disproportionately, as we mentioned. She looked at cases that came into St. Louis Children's Hospital, and the average age of those childhood gunshot victims was 13 years old. But it wasn't just the number of shootings that went up. So did the deaths. The deaths due to gunshot wounds increased almost 30 percent. And children more frequently needed to go to the operating room, needed to go to the pediatric intensive care unit because of these firearm injuries. That's because these incidents weren't accidents, but assaults, which tend to be more deadly. When there were big surges in COVID-related deaths, you know, frequently these are following a new variant emerging, we would see at the same time a spike in in pediatric gunshot wounds, you know, overlapping with that surge in COVID deaths or within three or so months of that surge. You know, and we think that this probably has a lot to do with people being in quarantine, you know, schools, daycares, places where children are usually safer, you know, being shut down. And when Dr. Bernardin talked with the victims' families, she found that most of the children weren't even the intended targets. The frequent description that we hear is that they're walking home from school or playing in a park or sitting on the stoop with their family and they hear gunshots ring out and they don't know where they're coming from or a car drives by and fires gunshots. That was Dr. Mary Beth Bernardin, a pediatric emergency medicine physician and lead author of the St. Louis study. 
Dr. Garcia, I just want to turn back to you and um, get a sense of how what Dr. Bernardin was saying there about the changes in gun violence during COVID. How does that match with what you witnessed um, in Cincinnati? Um, you know, very much the same situation here. We've seen an uh, uptick. Uh, and again, with not only just with gun violence, but gun violence uh, sort of affecting affecting children. Um, but I also think that we have a, a somewhat of a better understanding as to perhaps why that uh, sort of took place uh, and is taking place. Um, you know, we sort of understand now from the sociology literature about the importance of collective efficacy and uh, these nonprofit organizations, uh, the schools, uh, the churches that one had access to prior to the pandemic, but then was with the social distancing or sort of being locked in uh, to your home, uh, those resources that children had outside of the home uh, were no longer sort of available to them. And I think that that's certainly one of the major contributors to the uptick in violence among uh, among all uh, demographics, uh, but also among children. Hmm. Professor Richardson, um, I'm looking at some data here that shows that the vast majority of gun deaths are essentially uh, intra-racial, right? I mean, according to some 2018 data from the FBI's uh, expanded uh, homicide data set, they found that more than 80% of white victims of, or white murder victims were killed by white offenders who pulled the trigger. And the number is very, very similar for the, for the black community, that almost 90% of, uh, of black Americans who die from guns or homicide victims, uh, the person who shot them is black. Now, in your research, if I have this correct, uh, and, pl and please correct me if I'm wrong, but have you spoken with um, uh, young men who have, you know, taken part in these shootings? What are they, what did they tell you about sort of what they're thinking or, or, or why they actually ultimately did pull the trigger or even, even had the gun to begin with? So I would say there are a variety of reasons why um, young men um, engage in violence. But overall, I would say, as I mentioned in the, in the last segment, in terms of the lack of safety and feeling unprotected in their communities, what we found is an increased number of young men who were carrying firearms, not because they had Melissa's intent to want to harm or injure someone, but for the lack of safety that they felt in their communities. And so there are many reasons why um, we're, we're finding young people engaging in violence. Some of this is just uh, spur of the moment. Two people are in an, in an argument. One may have a firearm or both of them may have firearms. Um, the inability to kind of level out their um, emotional intelligence and, and anger and it leads to the um, inability to to health in a healthy way solve conflict, which results in someone being injured. So many of these are just kind of spur of the moment arguments. But then we have other issues um, as we've begun to see um, the issues regarding social media and what that means in terms of gun violence and social media. And as 
um, was mentioned, the breakdown of social support systems and infrastructures within communities during COVID, which led many people to be very socially isolated in their homes and disconnected mm -hmm. from schools and from community centers, which often resulted in more time on social media. And so we are, we're also finding, and if you speak to many of the uh, street outreach workers who do community violence intervention work, social media is a huge part of the narrative in terms of, of gun violence. And we need to do a better job of understanding like, how that plays out in terms of how violence moves from the street to social media and back to the street again. And so these yeah. there are a number of issues which we're which we need to really think more deeply about. And fortunately, my colleagues and I, uh, Dr. Eleanor Kaufman, who's a trauma surgeon at the University of Pennsylvania, and my colleague, Dr. Desmond Patton, who is a, a national expert on social media and violence, we're launching a study to do just that, investigating um, the relationship between social media and gun violence um, in the context of um, Philadelphia. So mm. I would say there, there are a number of issues which... Uh, play a role in, in why young people um, are engaging in, in, in firearm violence. Yeah. So you have this storytelling project that's titled Life After the Gunshot, right? And it follows um, 10 young Black men who survived gun violence in, in Washington. And just to reiterate some of what you, you said, I mean, you found that children who live within, what, four or five blocks of where shootings have occurred are far more likely to have to be treated at an emergency part department for mental health problems. And those uh, that that trauma essentially can stay with them for their their whole lives. And then you also um, had this really interesting section where um, you talk about how you said people are carrying some weapons because of the, they don't feel safe. But in the in the film, in the project, you talked about how the shooters also think that there, there's an aspect of toughness. But when they end up being the victims themselves of gun crime and they're in the hospital, uh, all that toughness fades away. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. So I think when many young people have the facade of, of bravado and invincibility until they're on the other side of the gun. And fortunately... You know, for us and who work in the hospital violence intervention space, uh, we get to see young people at their most vulnerable moments. And so when we have a young person who has been injured and they're lying in that hospital bed, they're often thinking about their lives. Some are thinking about retaliation, but many are thinking about what landed them in this space and are they ready to change their lives and for hospital violence intervention professionals and staff, that's when we have the opportunity to provide that uh, alternative to getting out of the street. And so for, for us in doing the film, we really wanted to show what young black men think about. I think we, we have a tendency to pathologize young black men as, as criminals, as violent, um, and, and malicious, but this really showed, our film really showed the vulnerability and trauma that many young Black men experience and often do not want to be in the situations that they find themselves in. 
And so mm-hmm. for, for us, um, showing that vulnerability, that level of vulnerability, but also providing the resources for them to move out of that space. And, it, and I just think it's just so unfortunate that the young men we work with, the first time they accessed therapy, they had to be shot in order to get that therapy, right? To dive into those adverse childhood experiences and what happened very early on in their childhood with exposure to violence or a parent being incarcerated. And it's unfortunate as a society that we don't have the, these resources within our communities and it takes for a young person to be injured in order for them to encounter the resources which may be available in a hospital setting that could provide them with the opportunity to get on the right path. And so I think for us, that, uh, showing the vulnerability of what these young men have experienced during over the course of their lives and, and their willingness to be honest and open about their emotions, I think speaks volumes to the humanity of the young men that we work with and often we we tend to have a, a a really narrow view of the young men that we hear every day on the six o'clock news or in our newspapers um, in the way we frame their lives. And, and yeah. to be quite honest, they, they seem from from my perspective and many of us who work with young um, black men and, and, and women and boys and girls, they are the most resilient um, people that I've ever met. Mm hmm. Well, I want to um, hear a little bit more from Trevon Bosley, who we heard from at the top of the show. Uh, remember, he grew up in Roseland in Chicago, in the Roseland neighborhood in Chicago, and he's still working to end gun violence um, in his neighborhood. And he told us that he under, he knows very well that this isn't, you know, any systemic problem doesn't have a quick fix. But he's also um, tired of waiting for something to happen. One piece of legislation is not going to be the end-all, be-all to what we're looking for. And they need to understand. They need to try to push legislation. Of course, assault weapons bans, switches bans, universal background checks. All these things need to be passed. But we also need bills that are passed that address the poverty and the uh, terrible education system that we have in our communities and all these other issues that come to create the gun violence and the problems that we see in our communities on the daily. Dr. Garcia, um, I I wonder what you think about that. Given all that you've shared with us about what you see every day, where do you think um, the solutions should begin? Um, I think Trevon is an extraordinarily, I mean, he may not have a PhD or an MD, but he knows more than most PhDs and MDs who are working in this area. I uh, I think where we would want to be, uh, where we need to be, is actually change the neighborhood context. Um, Point-in-time investments are good. I mean, we stop the bleed, but we have to understand why there's the shooting. And I have to just uh, bring to everybody's attention that if you change the neighborhood context, as was done, let's say, with the Movement to Opportunity HUD-funded HUD project, uh, there was not only a substantial reduction in violence and homicides, but also teen pregnancies, increase in educational attainment and economic achievement. Um, to Trevon's point, okay, um, we need to change the neighborhood context. Those worst places for poor white children, which are far better than the best places for black children, that needs to be changed. That political economy that has perpetuated 
what I saw early on in the 1980s and persist is not going to change unless we change the neighborhood context. And to your question, uh, Begna, we have to sort of invest in neighborhoods in a way that does not gentrify them, but actually uh, the individuals, black and brown, uh, that are in these neighborhoods are the primary beneficiaries of transformation of those neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, well, I, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you there, Dr. Garcia, but we've just got about a minute left to go, and I wanted to give Professor, Professor Richardson a chance uh, to sort of have the last word and, and take a crack at that question as well. I think that Trayvon is is totally 100% accurate when he states that the the solutions often lie in the people who are most proximal to the suffering. And for young people like Trayvon who live in those neighborhoods, the solutions lie within them. And we need to make more of an investment in young people in terms of how they perceive the solutions and empower, empower them to have a grassroots up approach to solving these problems instead of top down. And so I would encourage us to make more investments in young people and involving them in how we can solve these issues and solve these problems, getting them more engaged in our communities as problem solvers, because ultimately um, they will be the leaders of our society. And they, and many of the, the challenges that we face and the solutions um, in, in, that we need to address these yeah. issues are within the trade bonds of the world. Well, Joseph Richardson, a professor of African-American studies and anthropology at the University of Maryland, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Dr. Victor Garcia, pediatric surgeon and founding director of trauma services at Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center. Dr. Garcia, thank you so much. And thank you, Magna. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. <laughs>